Welcome to the podcast. This is a weekly podcast by Denver Transplants. I'm Matt. And I'm Andrew. And this is You Aren't From Here. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Happy Tuesday to you all. Hopefully you enjoyed a nice rainy weekend and beginning of the week. Uh, it's kind of nice. I enjoy a nice rainy day every once in a while. Dude, I love it. And it's, it and makes it's you... I, I mowed my yard for the first time this weekend because my grass is growing. And I was like, <laughs> I've never been excited to mow my yard. And like, I was like, okay, I'll go out there and do it. So it was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it makes you appreciate how nice and sunny Denver literally is all the time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, this episode um, for everybody, if you didn't see the title, it's all going to be about Red Rocks. Red Rocks. This will be kind of our last episode for a little bit of a series here that we have of interviews coming up. So get excited for that. Um, we're really excited. It's kind of a mix of restaurants, experiences, and just kind of a lot of random things that we've kind of thrown together that we're really excited to hear from. So hopefully you guys are pumped up about it. Our, uh, the, the booking, our schedule of interviews, I'm pumped. There's some like very off the wall, like really awesome interviews. I think they're going to be a lot of fun. So it's been fun. Like we, we definitely like, I think that's a great point. I never really thought of this as kind of like a series, but it really is like was kind of a history and getting to know the city of Denver outside of just food and drink and experiences. But it's been awesome. I've, I've learned a ton. So hopefully you guys have as well, but um, I promise you the next four weeks are going to be four weeks plus are going to be awesome. So buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. So just to kind of kick us off here, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and kick us off. So like whoa, said, whoa, wait. I got a couple of things for the things you need to know this week. I, I was okay. All right. <laughs> so, a couple quick things you need to know for Denver. Uh, Barry's boot camp opened finally in Cherry Creek, which was a big opening for the city of Denver. It's the first in the city. And if you don't know what it is, it's kind of like an orange theory, but I feel like it's a little bit more of a cult following kind of like a, Soul Cycle, it's big news there, and it's right next to Shake Shack. So if you go to Shake Shack and Shake Creek, then you go to Barry's, you feel pretty good about yourself. Isn't that like? Isn't Barry's boot camp or what like that? Isn't that like a celebrity, like Richie Hoity Toity? It's ex- it's definitely pretty expensive um, okay. per class, but I think I put it on par with like Soul Cycle, but more of a Orange Theory type thing. Got it. Next is uh, Meow Wolf is expected and has announced they're opening this fall and the capacity is going to open up at 450 people. Hopefully that increases by the time we get to that date, but as of now, it's 450 people. Uh, And then two things that I think are exciting for us people that like to drink and I'd imagine a decent amount of our listeners (laughs) are going to, there's a bill currently out that will allow cocktails to go through July of 2026. So it extended five years, which I think is super exciting. Yep. So you can go to, you know, illegal peds, get your marg and head out. And then they're also the city's extending seating on sidewalks and on streets until through 2022. So oh. two great things for the city for, you know, the average restaurant goer that we usually talk about and talk to and then the you know every weekend drinker or weekday drinkers it's great news i wonder i wonder if they're going to continue like because i mean 
I didn't know about the outdoor seating and stuff. I wonder if they're going to continue to block off roads like in Rhino and like some of those where they've kind of had to block them off just because they've had to move stuff out. But I've really become like, I love that like feel of just blocking off roads and being able to like, it's like a plaza feel a little bit, like bopping around, not having to worry about it. Like energy's high. I hope that becomes more of a thing. I, I love that environment. Um, yeah, no, but you know, it's, it seems like that's where the city's moving towards. Um, it kind of feels a little bit more, yeah, as you said. Like uh, European, kind of? European, yeah. like, yeah. yeah. So, big fan. so uh, moving past that, Matt, what did we learn this week? Am I allowed to go now, Sweat? Do I have permission? Yeah. Okay. I allow you. Gracious, man. All right, all right. So on track of Red Rocks. So I thought this was interesting because, again, obviously we're talking about Red Rocks, but the history of Red Rocks and really, I want to talk about some unrest at Red Rocks, right? So I know you've had, I'm sure if you've been to Red Rocks and you've been to a crazy concert, you've seen a fight or two or just, you know, the general wear and tear that comes with a concert, right? But there's actually a history and it really comes to rock and roll music um, around surrounding Red Rocks that I thought was very fascinating. And so I wanted to go through a little bit of that just before we kind of walk through the history of Red Rocks and talk a little bit more about Red Rocks as you guys know it. So Red Rocks, obviously, so I'm probably going to talk about this a little bit, so I may step on toes a little bit, but rock and roll has played a big, a big role in Red Rocks. One of the, one of Red Rocks, one of the first concerts at Red Rocks was the Beatles, right? Like it's, it's played, it is, it's, it's quintessential in who Red Rocks is today. So it's played a big role, but it really, it, 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 it it's been a little volatile. So in the early 1970s, so in 1971, there was um, a riot at Red Rocks, is what this is what this was called. And in 1971, Jethro Tull—I don't know who that is. If you're big into rock, I apologize. I don't mean to insult you. I don't know who that is. <laughs> but Jethro Tull had a show in 1971 at Red Rocks, and between a thousand to two thousand people showed up that didn't have tickets. So they wanted to see him so bad, they decided to show up regardless if they didn't have tickets or not. Now, Red Rocks, trying to control flow of, of people and everything like that, uh, they, they directed these 1,000 to 2,000 people to the back of this, behind the stage, outside of Red Rocks, to where you could still hear the band, you just couldn't see them. So they, they, they did that just to kind of separate, make sure people that paid and got tickets got a good show. They weren't overcrowding the venue, but also gave, you know, the opportunity for these people that didn't have tickets to listen as well. So everything was starting out great. Situation was under control until that thousand, 2000 people decided, you know what? I want to actually, I want to go see it. Screw this. So they, they charge the police line. So there's a line of police to make sure that they maintain control this group of, of people that didn't have tickets actually charged the police. They started throwing rocks and the authorities responded with tear gas. So it became a big deal. And they ended up, the, the tear gas was actually carried by the wind into the audience. So it became this giant mayhem scene because they were trying to control this small group of people throwing tear, gra tear gas. Eventually... <laughs> The tear gas not only affected those people, but got into the venue to where everyone else was watching the show was then getting tear gassed. And it became just absolute anarchy. So they ended up breaking through the line. Police ended up, um, you know, they, they got some of the people that didn't get tickets ended up getting into the venue. 
they needed Jethro Toll to basically try to calm everyone down. And essentially this, this whole event, they got, they got control of it, but the show was, was cut short and it basically just kind of ruined part of the, the experience. And this was deemed the riot at Red Rocks. And what interestingly enough, after that, the mayor banned rock music from Red Rocks. So this, uh, this event resulted in no rock music being played at Red Rocks from 1971 to 1975 for a four-year period. And then eventually a U.S. circuit court judge in 1975 said that, you know, basically called people like Russian czars saying that you can't control what people <laughs> listen to and uh, essentially reinstated rock music at Red Rocks. So I thought that was fascinating. Uh, one last kind of incident that happened, and this was more recently, this actually happened in 1996. It was um, with the band Fish. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Fish, but they're a this little more. This is, this is big for Denver and big for Colorado because there are a lot of like deadheads, fish, you know, hippies. Exactly. They're great. Like, like Coochie, Justin Coochie. I mean, you big deadhead guy. So I, exactly. I love it. So, so this was, I mean, pretty on brand, you know, got a lot of deadheads and essentially, you know, what ended up happening, right. Was the, the Jerry Garcia, who was part of the Grateful Dead died in 1995. So 96, uh, obviously this 96 was a dark time for, for fish fans, Grateful Dead fans just experienced a big loss and um, Fish was doing a four-night tour at Red Rocks in 1996. Now, similar to, you know, the, the riot that we talked about, there were, Red Rocks is a big event, but it's not massive, right? And so Fish had a huge following. There were a ton of people that came that, that wanted tickets that couldn't get them. So what ended up happening was all of these fans basically littered Morrison that basically that one street, the one street in downtown Morrison, they were camping wherever, drinking. I know fish, fish fans in 96 were, you know, free spirited. So I'm sure there were uh, substances being consumed, but essentially it just turned into, you know, the town was basically overrun by fish fans. Now, what ended up happening was they, this, there's a single handed event that, that was, that was caused by a single beer bottle. And so what ended up happening was, according to local news, fish fans that were camped out on the streets of Morrison, tensions erupted when police tried clearing the streets. Like I was saying, they were all camped out. They were clearing the streets when a single fan, and that's P-H-A-N, retaliated by throwing a beer bottle at an officer. After that, essentially, Morrison police were called in. It was like tear gas. There were batons it turned into this giant, like people getting thrown, like hundreds of people were arrested. They were like, it, it basically turned into absolute chaos again. And what ended up happening and the takeaway was this was in 96. There was, and I have to say this was unofficial because Red Rocks didn't actually officially ban fish, but there was an unofficial ban of fish for 13 years and fish did not return to Red Rocks from 1996 back until 2009. So there was an unofficial 13 year ban of fish. I would say this isn't backed by science or fact. I want to say they still might be banned or that they haven't come back since then because 
they basically moved it all to uh Dick's Sporting Goods Park. Yeah. Correct. So so the band eventually they played at Red Rocks for four nights in 2009. But since 2011, Dick's Sporting Goods has officially become their like they're basically their Colorado home. So you're right, Sweat. I think they've only played once since then. It was a four night stint in 2009. And then everything since they've just been playing at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Commerce City. So it's just been crazy. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know any of that, but Red Rocks, you know, it, it, you know, rock, rock and roll giveth and rock and roll taketh away. And so it's one of those things where it's like, you know, the Beatles played there, they got Red Rocks, you know, probably a, a ton of notoriety, but then it's also, there was a four year band in seven in the early seventies and they've banned fish for 13 years. And it's just been kind of an interesting love, hate relationship with rock and roll music at Red Rock. So Red hopefully, Hopefully, if you go and see a rock show, you're you're kind of you know you're you're experiencing history. I mean that that yeah. that was banned at a certain at a certain times. So. so I've only, I mean I went to Greta Van Fleet, so I've basically been part of history. I'm glad. See? There you I go. History books, though. Yeah. So hopefully you enjoy rock and roll music a little more um, from that. So that's what we learned this week. Little fun Red Rocks history there. But Sweda, where'd we where'd we go this week? Yeah, um, so this one is, it's kind of a mix. It's kind of a conglomerate of a couple of different things. It's called Milk Market, Denver Milk Market. And it's located at 1800 Wazi Street, which is basically 18th Street and Wazi, which is right in the heart of kind of Lodo Union Station area. And what it is, is just, it's basically a food market of, but there's also a, a big bar component. So one, you can go there for lunch and just get, you know, there's a bunch of different concepts that kind of change over time. There's a couple that have been there for a long time, but they kind of change out. Um, for example, the Bonanno Brothers Pizzeria, Lou's Hot and Naked, which is kind of a, I think it's Southern food. Uh, if you have Green Huntsman, which is more salad. Mono Pasteria, which is the pasta. Morning Jones, which is kind of pastries. Roost Butchery, which is like sandwiches and butchery stuff. S&G, it is a sandwich place. Cornicello is a ice cream place. <laughs> and they just keep going. Uh, brunch, which looks like a brunch place. Bao Chica Bao. Wait, brunch is a brunch place? <laughs> which is a bao <laughs> bunt. Mo Poke is a poke place. And Albina by the Sea is a seafood place. So those are all the eating places. So that is the main concept of it, but there's also a pretty large bar in there, and there's actually two of them. There's one called Moo Bar, and there's one called the Standard Pilgrim. So if you're looking, it kind of provides everything. If you're looking for just a simple, you know, lunch or a simple dinner, that's kind of quick, kind of easy. It's a great place to go, and you have kind of variety, kind of similar to you know Central Market up in Rhino. But there's also similar to Central Market. There's two big large bars and. If you back pre-COVID before the pan, like back before the pandemic, B, uh, what was it? BC before, no. Yeah, before COVID. BC. Before COVID. Uh, the bar gets pretty packed on like a Thursday, Friday afternoon. So good spots. Overall, I think it's a great experience. Provides a lot of variety. Um, I think the only thing that I would say that's kind of rough about it is it is a little bit more expensive. It's not your typical $7 lunch. It's more of a typical... 12 to $20 lunch. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so they do have, I've, I've been once and we didn't get, we actually didn't go in for food. It was one I actually wasn't living here. Um, and of course it's, it's a, it's a staple spot, right? It's like a, you know, the, it's like any of your public markets. It's a very similar concept where you go and you can, you have a bunch of different options, but we actually went to a place called Cellar, which if you've been, it's kind of out in the open. And I don't think it's actually open right now because of COVID it's really not in an, its own, like it is in its own store, but it's really, it's, it's kind of out in the middle of like everything. And it's a really cool little wine spot. And they do, they do their own wines. They have a bunch of wine on, on draft that they'll actually let you put in a full bottle and take to go that I had. That was really good. Um, some of your more, you know, interesting varietals from France and, you know, but they have your, your classic, you know, Cabernets, your Pinot Noirs, all that stuff. So pretty interesting, uh, interesting spot as well. So I know Sweat mentioned all the food stuff, but for your wine lovers out there, I think they let you just get a glass and like sit there as well. Uh, I don't know how, how that's changed with COVID, but they have a bunch of glasses set up where I think you can just get a glass and walk around with it as well. So kind of a cool spot and definitely worth going. It's a really cool, cool experience and stop by seller for me because it was a, it was a pretty solid spot. Yeah. And I would add during COVID right now, it's actually a pretty good spot. You can, what you do is you sit down, you scan the code and then you, it writes down your table number and then you can order from like one of the eight restaurants and they'll basically bring your food out. So you pay for you on your phone and they bring it out. So you don't have to go wait in line. You don't have to do any of that. It's kind of like having a waiter for eight different places. Love that. So rating wise, uh, I like it a lot. I think it's a really good concept. I think the bar is really, really cool. I think during the pandemic, it's a little rough, obviously, because the bar is not hopping like what it usually would on a Thursday or Friday. But I'm not going to downplay it for that i i think i would go with probably a rating of a 7.5 just kind of middle down the road i like it a lot the location's amazing it's a good after work drink spot but i i just always struggle with places that are over like 12 dollars for lunch it's just yeah when you can go to chipotle and i can or illegal pizza and i'm under 10 and you can go to like jimmy john's it's just difficult to go even though it is local spot you should support local it's difficult to go and spend 12 to 20 dollars on lunch and it's, dude, this concept, and we've, we've seen it with the other, what was the other market, the public market we, we looked at? I mean, there's been a couple, right? But the concepts, it's it's hard to rate because the, the concept to a certain extent is only as good as the restaurants that are in it, right? Which they don't really control, right? So milk market as a concept is cool, but if the restaurants in there are crap, well, it's like, well, that's kind of an unfair rating, right? I'm not saying that's the case here. It's just harder to rate. So I think you're right. I haven't eaten here but I guess you don't really need to eat here because if we were judging it off the food, we would need to use that restaurant, not the concept of milk market. Right. So, so I I think the concept I'm, I'm with you, I'm going to give it a little higher rating. I I think I'm going to go seven, eight and I like it because there's, it's a cooler it's in the, it's in downtown. Right. So it's like, it's a really cool spot. You're in the heart of everything. It just, it's a little quirkier and a little more historic than just your standard, you know, market that you would, you know, go in Sloan's Lake or wherever you, you go to your public markets, right? So I think the history, the location, all that bumps it up a little higher in my opinion. And I, I love the concepts like that wine concept is a really cool concept where you just grab a glass and walk around like that's specific to wine that's that's speaking my language. So that's my rating. I think I'm, I'm going to stick with it. 
So good stuff. Yeah, I like it. So next, this is more on Matt. Uh, what did we chose? We yeah. So uh, the old missus and I went to Hillstone Restaurant in Cherry Creek. Now, again, this is you know Swinton and I know this, so please don't come after us. This is a this is owned by Hillstone Restaurant Group, who has restaurants across the nation. We get it, hundred percent. Not exactly local, but we want it, we think it's worth mentioning because not only have we've been to Hillstone, but in Colorado, they also have White House Tavern, which is in Aspen. Now, having gone to Hillstone, my rating for White House Tavern is like a nine and my rating for Hillstone's probably like a seven, six. So I'll explain, <coughs> I'll explain why. And what you're going to see here is the food is very similar, if not the exact same. The menu doesn't really deviate. And, and I really like Hillstone because you can get, it gets a little bit of everything, right? So they have a bunch of really good sandwiches that I absolutely love that, you know, run anywhere from, you know, 16 bucks to 12 bucks, or it looks like it runs from, oh, okay, maybe a little more, 17 to 21 bucks. And that one of their sandwiches is a Gulf Coast style fish sandwich, which is so good. And they also have a crispy chicken sandwich, which is, you know, a, a fancy Chick-fil-A sandwich, essentially. So they have that, but then they also have, you know, what I had last time was the Hawaiian, which is a ribeye steak with pineapple soy ginger marinade, which was unreal out of this world. So good. And so it's like you get your, you get a little bit of both, right? So if you're feeling fancy, you can get the ribeye. If you want, you know, if you're going with your wife of three years, and you just want to go have a date night, but you don't need anything too crazy. They have really good, you know, handheld sandwiches and burgers that you can get for, you know, around 20 bucks as well. So the thing that I want to want to mention, and here's the differentiator for all you Denver folks. So the thing about Hillstone is they are very, um, they are very well priced when it comes to alcohol. Now, the difference in the difference in rating is purely because White House Tavern in Aspen has the best liquor prices of any restaurant I've been to in my entire life. Now, I don't say that I don't say that easily, and I don't say that lightly. But the the White House Tavern that is the competitive advantage for for Hillstone Group. Now, prices were not as good at Hillstone and Cherry Creek as they were in White House Tavern. But let me give you an example. A, if you've had, if you're all my bourbon folks out there, a Pappy 15 year, that bottle runs you, oh man, like two grand, 1500 if you can find it. And you can get a two ounce pour of Pappy 15 year at White House Tavern for like 30 bucks, 35 bucks. Which if you go and you go to most places that are way overpriced, they sell Blanton's for 20. I like that. That's just like, it's just, and Blanton's, you can buy Blanton's at 60 bucks. So it's like, yeah. just do the proportions there. It's just asinine. It's crazy. And then they basically sell wine. You're getting wine at cost plus maybe two or 3%. So that that's the competitive advantage there. I've already given my ratings. I can't remember what I said, but I, I remember White House Tavern was a nine. If you're in Aspen, go same concept if you're in denver still go still very reasonable wine prices they're under two times what they cost which is good in wine restaurant world but yeah. definitely worth worth going to try and would definitely recommend if you go getting that fish sandwich or the hawaiian ribeye steak phenomenal so yeah and i'll be honest i mean i i, 
I went to Sundallis. Obviously, we talked about it's being a chain. It's cross country. But I think you're underrating Hillstone in general. I think Hillstone in general is like an 8.3 for me. I think every single time I've gone, the what they do is they pride themselves on their service. And their service is absolutely amazing. And you notice it when you like when you eat there. It is like one thing that I experienced was when a buddy of mine was drinking a martini. The frost off the glass w- went away. And they immediately brought him a new martini glass, poured the martini in it. And then every single time he basically it went out, out of frost, they would bring him a new glass. So like... That's what their pride is. And then their food is also just absolutely incredible. Um, oh. they have this, They have a, a kale salad, which I don't know if you've ever had a kale salad, but most of them taste like you're eating just like a piece of broccoli. Like bitter, <laughs> yeah, bitter lettuce. Yeah, and, and they do an incredible job. I don't know how they do it, but they make a kale salad taste amazing. It's, a, it's impressive. So huh. go there, um, even though it's not local, it's a great spot really good date spot hey. you're not going to spend an arm and a leg when you're there in my defense if you average my two ratings i get pretty close to 8.3 so, that's true so it's a good spot go for it and especially if you're an aspen you have to go to white house tavern i can't i can't speak high, more highly of that place so I, I got a little more that's a little more aspen i realize that but hey it's it's a solid spot in in uh chair creek as well so give her a shot yep so, all right, so, well, you know, we, the, the moment we've all been waiting for, one thing I do want to talk about before we, we move on is the beer of the week. We are officially starting up a beer of the week next week. We apologize for the, the, the three-week vacation we've been on. I promise you we are, uh, it's all been, we're laying seeds and groundwork to get something interesting and, and creative coming up here sh- soon. So next week we will start with our, our new series of beer of the week. So we're going to skip this week again, but next week we will be back. So with that sweat, let's hit them with the, uh, the old red rocks knowledge. Yeah. So obviously I was, everybody thinks red rocks. You would think there is a crazy amount of history. I think there is relative to the artists and there is relative to what Matt was talking about and like stories like that but the true history of like how Red Rocks was built and how it came about really isn't as interesting as I thought it would be. Um, it all basically started back in the 1900s is where kind of the main, early 1900s where kind of the main story starts. So there's an, an individual by the name of John B. Walker who purchased, he originally had thought about, you know, there needs to be some kind of music venue, acoustic venue in the mountains, because obviously the, if you've ever been to Red Rocks, the acoustics off of the rocks is, is amazing. It sounds like you're inside a concert hall. So he took a step further in, in early 1900s. In 1906, he purchased what is now today called Red Rocks. At that time, it was called the Garden of the Angels, and it had been called that since 1870. And when he purchased it, he actually changed it to the Garden of the Titans and said that name until 1928 when the city took over the property. Um, but at that time, he kind of named the rocks. So if you're at the concert, at the east side, there's a massive rock. That's called the stage rock. If you go to the south side, that's called the creation rock. And then if you go to the north side, north side, there's a large rock. It's called the ship rock, which it actually looks like the stern of a ship, kind of like the Titanic sinking down into the water. So those were some things I think was 
he called those rocks and they've kind of stuck to today. Following his ownership, he actually fell into financial problems in the 1920s and had lost, was about to lose the property in a tax sale. And there's kind of some mixed stories about this. It, what my understanding is and what I'm reading is that he sold it to John Ross and John Ross was actually, he was a part of Bear Creek Development Corporation. And interesting enough, John Ross's brother was Harold Ross, who supposedly started the New Yorker magazine. And weirder, I thought, was John Walker later started the Cosmopolitan magazine. So they're all kind of related to like the, the magazine kind of world, which was kind of odd. But what most people believe and what the city has always sold is that the city and the county of Denver actually purchased the property from John Walker in the 1920s for $54,000, $133. However, there's no record of it in the sale of Jefferson County records and there's no such deed of sale. So what I was reading was they sold to John, John Walker sold to John Ross. Then the city actually took Red Rocks through eminent domain and took it away from John and Mary Ross. And then later, in the history, in 1935, city planners, um, in the name of Frederick Law Olmsted, he was an urban landscape architect, and combined with Burnham Hoyt, they were the ones that truly like envisioned what Red Rocks was today. And they basically worked with the mayor and the city to lobby to basically create what is now Red Rocks. So they moved forward, they built the Red Rocks, and what the amphitheater is now today actually opened in 1941. So kind of an interesting history where it's kind of, you know, this guy owned it, he lost it supposedly in a tax sale because he's falling apart, but they don't really know how the city came about to get the actual property. But so kind of weird, it seems like Denver kind of has these kind of funky takeovers or weird situations that happened in the history. I don't know if that's just general history and I don't know history or if that's just Denver was kind of, you know, the wild west back then. Oh, I, I definitely think it's a little bit of the wild west. I, I love, that is one of my favorite things about learning and that the common theme, like you were saying of, of just the, what we've learned in the, the, the common theme of the, this, this segment or this, this session of episodes is like the little things like the bodies under Cheeseman Park and like how we're not really sure how we got red rocks. It's like, there's a lot, there's a lot, it kind of adds to the allure of, of the history, right? It's like, there's a lot of, the more unknown there is, the more people start filling in the blanks themselves, which add to, you know, the creativity and the, the, the you know, kind of mysticism that comes with, with Denver history and Colorado history, which, you know, I love, I love, I, I feel like I've learned a ton uh, about, you know, that Denver definitely has a underlying theme when you progress through Denver, Denver yesterday to Denver today. So, yeah. Uh, well, it seems like it's either people are making up a bunch of shit or Denver was just kind of a shady place in the back in the day. And it's like kind of like the mob in New York and just kind of, you know, slowly accumulated things. <laughs> or did yeah. we? I think the general rule is the more gray area when it comes to details, the sketchier the, uh, the history is. <laughs> so, yeah. We may not know specifically how Red Rocks became Red Rocks and who owns it and all that, but you know, it's probably, it's probably meant to be that way. (laughs) 
Yeah. So to the public, most people think that, you know, John Walker sold to John Ross and John Ross. Uh, or most people think that the city took it and bought it from John Walker for 54 grand, which is about 806 grand today. Um, but a lot of people believe that it was just taken through a minute domain through John Ross. So kind of an interesting world there. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's our, that's our episode this week. Kind of short, kind of sweet. Uh, as we said, we're going to have some back-to-back kind of interview series here coming up that are going to be really interesting. So tune in and we look forward to hearing it. Yeah. See you guys next week. Love y'all.